in Sioux Falls as people go and visit the local hospital and cancer society. A dilemma that's true every day in Africa as millions of kids die from lack of clean water. A dilemma when your experience in life conflicts with the foundations of your faith. This morning, we could put many pictures on the screen. We could tell many stories. But we don't need to because we all agree there are problems. We all agree that evil and suffering is all around us. We know we live in a world with problems because we look at our own hearts and our own lives and we see many problems. So how is it that evil can exist in a world created by a good and perfect God? How can we as Christians faithfully comfort one another and non-believers facing such trials in their lives? This morning we come to the end of our You Asked It series with the final question that's probably the most difficult question. We come to the end with probably the question or the objection that will keep many away from the Christian faith. How do we deal with the reality of evil and suffering and still proclaim a good and sovereign God? I mean, we just sang this morning our opening song, His love endures forever. The song right before the sermon, God, you reign. Are those true? Or are we just gathering to feel good? Where do we go with this dilemma of evil and suffering? Where do we go when our life experience collides with the foundation of our faith? And every time you look at the question of evil or suffering, there's a variety of ways to attack it. We can say, Satan is at work in the world today, which would be true. The Bible reveals to us that there is this evil being, this evil creature that has power and authority on earth and is at work creating chaos. We could look at that and say, it's Satan's fault that that plane crashed. Yet then you take it one step further and you said, well, if you have an all-powerful God, why didn't he just create angels that wouldn't have fallen? And then we may say, well, all of the problems in the world are because of humanity, the first humans in the world. The first humans in the world, they chose evil, they turned their backs on God, and that set everything in a tailspin. The first humans are to blame. Well, then you can take it one step further. If an all-powerful and all-good God created those human beings, why not create them in such a way that they wouldn't choose evil? No matter how you work the question, no matter what angle you come from, where does it all end up? In the lap of God. There's no way around it. No matter which direction you take, it's all going to, at the end, come back to God. Why God? How do we now handle this question of evil and suffering knowing that it all comes back to God? This morning, you're not going to leave with a nice formula. You're not going to leave with a nice cute answer that you can put on Facebook that will make all of the agnostics and atheists happy. What we want to do this morning is develop a framework that's saturated in biblical truth that allows us as followers of Christ to experience peace and work from that framework when, in, when, 
when involved with other people that are in the middle of the furnace. And so when we begin the conversation around suffering and evil, we have to begin by understanding the role of the Bible. You know, when we have questions, and especially in the church, we're always encouraged to what? Turn to the Bible. Turn to God's Word for guidance. A perfectly good answer, the faithful answer, it's where we should turn. At the exact same time, though, we must know one thing. Scripture is not intended to satisfy our curiosity. Rather, Scripture tells us what we need to know about our salvation and the God of our salvation. The Bible was never written to satisfy all of our curiosity. Or in other words, the Bible was not written to meet our wants. The Bible was written to meet our needs. And so when we go to the Bible, there's not all of the answers to all of the things that we're curious about. Actually, the Bible then straightly says in different ways, God's ways are not our ways. And we should not wonder why God did not set things up differently. In other words, the Bible reveals to us Jesus Christ and salvation and God himself. But the Bible does not answer all of our questions. We cannot make the Bible into Wikipedia. Wikipedia is the new internet encyclopedia. You type into something into Google, how to change a tire. Wikipedia has got an answer for you. I mean, Wikipedia has an answer for everything, and it's anybody and everybody just throwing their opinion down on the document. The Bible is not Wikipedia. The Bible was written with a very specific purpose to tell us who God is and bring us salvation. So when we understand the New Testament, in the New Testament, we've got four books that are written about the earthly life of Jesus that tell us what Jesus taught, tell us what Jesus did. And then the rest of the New Testament, we've got a bunch of letters. These letters were written by the apostles of Jesus to answer kind of questions, problems that were going on in churches that were starting. But these letters were not written as encyclopedias where you could go to a table of contents and say, I've got a question about parenting today. Where can I turn? It was never written that way, and it never operated that way. The Bible was written to give God's word to a specific situation, and that word, how it applies to all of humankind in all time. But God didn't deal with every single situation. So therefore, the Bible does not answer every question. And that's where we start, and that's where we've got to get comfortable as Christians. The Bible has given us what we need. We have what we have and we don't have what we don't have. We even see in the Bible this recording of God interacting with Job. We read it this morning. If you're familiar with the story of Job, it's basically the story of a man who has a horrible life. Everything gets taken from him. People get hurt. And then Job's got some friends. Friends that like to ridicule him. Friends that like to say, hey, maybe you should leave this God who's doing all of this to you. And so we see all of this stuff going on and interactions between Job and God. And what we see in today's reading from Job is basically God saying to Job, Hey, Job, do you have any experience in telling the oceans where to stop? Job, do you have any experiencing, experience in determining the depths of the seas? Job, do you have any experience in determining what will be land and what will be water? 
Basically, God's saying to Job, God, Job, you deal with human things, and I'll deal with God things. We see this also in the prophet Isaiah, where we're, where we're told to, God's ways are not our ways. And therefore, each ending is kind of walk by faith. So the very first thing we have to understand is that the Bible brings salvation and God to us. It does not necessarily answer all of the whys. And that's not popular. That's not fun. It's not satisfying. But it's reality. And it's what God has revealed to us. So God has given us what we need, not what we want. So I don't want to bypass the question totally and just leave it that it's right there because the Bible does give us a picture of what has happened in what we're facing. And in Romans chapter 8 this morning that we read, it's basically laying out this argument that all of creation is under a curse. So from the first time that humans sinned, creation itself came underneath a curse. So the teaching of the Bible is this, that when a farmer is farming, the reason that a farmer has a weed in the field is because of sin. Sin set all of creation, not just human relationships, but all of creation into, in a sense, a tailspin. So everything is under a curse because of sin. And Romans 8 talks about that, that all of creation is like this, this groaning that wants the new child to come out. All of creation is just waiting for that, for that moment when that greatness is going to happen. So all of creation is under a curse. But Romans chapter 8 actually tells us that, okay, as you're in the middle of this curse, look ahead to your future glory because your present sufferings cannot compare at all to the future glory. Everybody in this room lives their life comparing themselves to other people. If I told you today, man, you're all filthy rich. The first thing you would do is say, oh no, no, my neighbor, my neighbor drives a new car. So you determine how rich you are by looking at other people. So we always live our lives in the comparison trap. You consider yourselves good by looking at the behavior of others. Constantly comparing ourselves to other people. And the scriptures actually call us to not compare ourselves to anyone, but to seek the glory of God, except this one instance when we're called to a life of comparison. Romans chapter 8. Compare your present sufferings to the future glory. So what God is basically saying, get your mind so saturated with the resurrection and the coming redemption and the new kingdom that you can compare your present sufferings knowing that this is nothing compared to what I'm going to get in the years ahead. So you're so saturated with this picture of beauty that the ugly picture doesn't compare at all. It's the only area where we're asked to compare because our present sufferings, Romans 8 tells us, cannot compare to the future glory that we will receive. We've got to become so saturated with that future glory, the future hope. Basically, what God is saying here is this. There is evil and suffering. And you're going to live in the midst of that evil and the suffering. But I have, excuse me, I have overcome that evil and that suffering. Now you can have hope. You see, the danger that we live in is we design ourselves a God who fits our picture. 
And when we design ourselves a God that fits our picture or who we can believe in because God matches up then with our thinking, what happens is we basically design a God who can never conquer all of this evil and suffering. When the Bible reveals to us that evil and suffering are a reality and there's mystery to it, but the Bible reveals to us that there is a God who has conquered all of the evil and the suffering. Now, that doesn't go very far with an agnostic or an atheist. Because they got a whole different worldview. Because they're common. I can't believe in a God like that. Well, underlying that whole sense of this, that whole worldview is this. I can only believe in a God whom I agree with, or I only can believe in a God who is loving and good as I define loving and good. So the answer is not going to help the atheist or the agnostic, but it puts us in a position of knowing where we come from as followers of Christ. Evil and suffering are a reality. So the question becomes, how should we interact with those that are in the middle of the furnace right now? And Chuck Swindoll, the famous pastor, says it best. He says, everybody is either in a season of suffering right now, going into a season of suffering, are coming out of a season of suffering. There's no way around it. It's the reality of human life and the presence of evil and sin. So you might not be in it right now, but going to be in it at some point. And we all know someone who's in it right now. So the question is, what do we do with those who are in it right now? And a couple of things that may come across as simple, not intended to be simple, but based upon foundation theological teaching. What do we do with people that are in the furnace? The first thing is this. We need to be present with those people. And you say to yourself, well, of course, pastor, show up thing. Well, this goes a lot deeper than that. This is actually based upon the gospel and the incarnation of God. We use the word incarnation, which means God with us, to tell the story that Jesus left the comforts of heaven and came and lived among humanity and experienced suffering like humanity does. So, just as God incarnated, now you and I are asked to go out and be the presence of Christ here on earth. God with us, now we're supposed to be God with others. We have to be present with other people. It sounds simple, it actually is simple, but guess what? It's extremely difficult. How many times, if I had a nickel for every time somebody tells me this, think, oh, I know I should have called so-and-so. Oh, I, I've just, it slipped, time has slipped by and I haven't followed up with so-and-so at all. Happens all of the time. So the most simplest of things showing up is the most difficult of things. Why? Satan doesn't want you to show up. What does Satan want to do? Satan wants to isolate the person that's in the middle of suffering and evil so that person can just drown in evil and suffering. And Satan wants to keep you over here, what? Preoccupied with all of your busyness. You're getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner and there's a lot to get ready, right? I mean, most people are having 15, 20 people over and it's not easy. So where's your mind at? Have we dusted? What time did I put the turkey in? Do we have enough ice cubes for all of the glasses? Your mind's preoccupied with all of this, but three doors down, 
There's a person who lost their spouse last year and has nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. But what happened? Well, I got all this stuff. We can't do the simplest of things of show up and invite. It's not that there would have been any profound theological statements made at Thanksgiving. You're not going to talk about suffering at the Thanksgiving table, but it's allowing that person to have others that love and encourage them at a holiday. What can we do for those that are in the midst of the furnace? We can show up. We can show up. That's basically all we can do. And that's what God has asked us to do, to be His presence, to be His witnesses. And when we show up, and I don't mean to be crude this morning or unrespectful, but I'm going to put it very bluntly this morning, we're asked to show up and shut up. And that goes to the second half here of what we do for people that are going through the furnace. And the reason I say shut up this morning is very simply this. We can't throw out catchy Christian slogans to people that are in the midst of suffering. So for example, God will not give you more than you can handle. It's on a lot of Christian cards. It's on nice things that hang on walls. It's not in the Bible. It's not true. So when you say that to someone, when you say, God will not give you more than you can handle, they just lost their parent in an airplane crash. They hear that. What are they thinking to themselves? Well, I can't handle this, so this must mean that I'm not good enough for God. Or I must not have been created right if that's true about what God has done. It's a nice phrase. It sounds good. It's simple. But it's unhelpful in the midst of the furnace. Another nice phrase in the midst of the furnace, God has a plan for you. Just pray. So you're telling me that God has a plan for me. My mother is just in the, car, in the plane. That's got to be part of the plan if you say God's got a plan for me. And if I just pray, all's going to be okay. Well, what's a person going through a person's mind there? I want nothing to do with the God that has that sort of plan. Is there an element of truth in that God has a plan? There's an element of truth that God has a plan. But it's an unhelpful element at that specific point in time. So it's a matter of showing up and a lot of times shutting up. I'm not saying don't water down truth. But our goal is for our truth to build up and to edify. God does not need to be defended. You never hear God say to Job, Hey, uh, Job, could you stand up for me with your buddies over here that are mocking me? Because... I need someone to defend me because if you don't defend me, I'm not going to be God anymore. God does not need us to defend His ways when His ways are oftentimes very mysterious. We're asked to give testimony. We're asked to, if someone says, follower of Christ, yes. But we don't have to defend the ways of God. We just have to simply be faithful to God. And in the midst of walking alongside someone, our job is not to defend what God has done or God has allowed to happen or what mysteriously is taking place. Our job is to be the presence of Christ in that situation. It's time that we begin to show up on a regular basis for those around us. And this means inconvenience, right? 
Because at Thanksgiving, who's coming over? Oh, your family, your 15, maybe your aunts and uncles, who you only get to see once a year. Well, you don't want to have that other person because who are they going to sit by? And that's going to be odd because then I'm going to have to talk to them the whole time and I want to talk to Uncle Frank. God never called us to comfort. God didn't say to the Apostle Paul, hey, hey, Paul, why don't you just stay here and send on your other people to Rome and places where there's going to be persecution? You stay with your extended family and you can write doctrine there. He sends Paul all over and faces persecution all over. God does not call us to comfort, but He calls us to show up and be His presence. This morning, you could be thinking to yourself, whoa, I've said some stupid things. Um, I don't want to show up because I might say some more stupid things. The point is not to put ourselves in a position of scared or guilty, but to refresh us on who we can be. The chances of that person actually remembering exactly what you said is pretty slim if they're right in the middle of the battle. There's another opportunity for you to enter in and build the relationship and provide care. What can you do? Go mow a lawn? Make a hot dish? Take over some baked goods? Have a campfire together? Go on a bike ride? What can you do simply to be in relationship? And you're not going to have to have a theological conversation the whole campfire. But simply be present. And be prepared for awkwardness. Because there's not always answers. So there's going to be awkwardness because there's not answers. But we're still called to be faithful. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is extremely short. King David wrote it. King David had an interesting life. He was chosen by God to be the king of the greatest nation that's ever existed. King David was great, given a great amount of authority and power. Yet King David saw children die. King David saw best friends leave him. King David saw nations crumble when he was supposed to build the greatest nation. So Psalm 31, inspired by God, gives us a good picture of where we should be. King David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with, the, with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. King David basically says, God, I'm going to let you be God. I don't know what's going on with these ways right now. And I'm not going to occupy myself with those things. But I am going to occupy myself with one thing. You. Notice what he says here? Like a weaned child with its mother. This is critical. He doesn't say like a nursing child. Because what does a nursing child want from their mother? Milk. Right? Mom for milk. A weaned child wants mom for mom. A weaned child has had a little bit of life experience. David is basically saying, I've had life experience. I've seen it. And it's not all good, but I'll take God. 
this morning. There is no easy answer to the four-year-old in Juarez, Mexico. There is no easy answer this morning to the family that lost loved ones on the airplane. This morning, there is no clear answer to the why. But there is one clear call. Put your hope in the Lord. That when circumstances around you look weak, when circumstances around you are drowning you, David says, put your hope in the Lord. For we have a God who is mysterious, but we have a God who has conquered all evil and suffering and has given us a living hope. And so this morning, we do two things. We first look back. And that's what we're going to do now, is we're going to look back. And that's why we turn our attention to communion this morning. is because at communion, we're looking back. It's the only time in Scripture that we're really ever called to look back. Called to look back at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and to remember His sufferings. And so we look back knowing that we have a God who is familiar with suffering. And while we look back, we also look ahead knowing that we have a glorious future through the resurrection of the dead because of His suffering and His forgiveness extended to us. So today we look back and we look ahead and we seek to put our hope in the Lord who has conquered everything on our behalf. So this morning I invite you to prepare your hearts to receive the gift of God Himself, to put yourself in a position of faith and belief. I'd ask that you would take a moment now and we're going to pray and ask that you would just, maybe this morning's a good time to acknowledge to God, God, I'm just angry about this. God, I'm frustrated about this. God, I'm hurt by what's going on here. Lay it on the table. Speak it to God. God, give me faith. God, give me hope. And then allow God to examine your heart and allow God to bring those things that you need to acknowledge to Him so that you can prepare yourself to receive the gift, the gift of Jesus, the gift of God Himself. Let's take a moment right now for silent prayer and reflection. Almighty God, we come before You and we're going to ask that You examine our hearts. Right now, God, I ask that You take Your Holy Spirit and prompt our thinking and prompt our hearts of things that we need to confess or acknowledge to You. God, we ask that now as we sit silently, we ask that You would work on our hearts and our minds. Hear us, O God, and reveal things to us. Almighty God, we lay all of these things at Your feet. We acknowledge that there's a lot of mysteries and we struggle with anger and frustration and sadness. We also acknowledge that many times we have our own evil in our own hearts and our own sin. We ask that You'd cleanse us today from that and enable us to believe in You. I pray that You'd capture our minds with Your hope this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.